even though. <laughs> um, well, good morning. Welcome to part, part five of our series entitled All In, uh, where we're walking through the book of Colossians. Uh, we're halfway through, um, halfway through Tim's sabbatical. Um, I just want to say before I get started, thank you so much to the elders and Derek and Chuck for um, all the support and help that they've given me uh, through, the, through the weeks already. Um, I would not have been able to do that without them, so um, really, really appreciate uh, their heart for the Lord and their, their leadership and their willingness to um, come alongside uh, me and, and, and help us as a church through uh, Tim's sabbatical. Um. All right, so far in the series, we've been talking about living the all-in life and what it means to pursue Christ above all. We've seen that the object of our pursuit is captivating and worth going all-in after. And, we've, and Derek reminded us that Jesus is the object of our pursuit and that we've got to place Him in the top priority. Chuck reminded us that we don't do anything in order to be saved. But Jesus has done it all. We don't have to work up to becoming right with Him. We can pursue Him because He saw fit to pursue us first. And last week, Derek pointed out some not always intuitive opportunities that come to us as we live all in. This morning, as we get rolling, I want you to think about the number of advertisements you've seen through the course of your life. I read a statistic that said we will have over 5,000 advertisements coming our way in a day. One person, one day, 5,000 ads. Now, there's no way we can possibly absorb all of that advertisement, but the point is we're constantly being inundated with product information. And all of that product information is trying to get our attention. I think you'll agree the best advertising is the advertising that points us to that feeling of being incomplete. That feeling that, well, something isn't quite right in our lives and we could have more. I think of something simple like a razor. I look at my razor that has only three blades and I see an advertisement for one that has five and I instantly think, wow, I, my little three-blade razor is really lacking. I better run out and go get that one with five. Or I am mopping the floor with my normal mop, and then I see an ad for a Swiffer Sweeper. This thing sweeps, mops, and it's battery-powered, so it sprays the stuff on the floor for me while I'm cleaning. i got to get one of those things. That's what's going to make my life complete. You see, sometimes... The things that, those advertisements, those things that are trying to get our attention, sometimes that feeling of being incomplete, that pushes us to do things that are not that beneficial to us. Or it pushes us to go out and buy something that really doesn't solve a problem, that really doesn't make us feel complete. But sometimes, an awareness of that feeling of incompleteness pushes us to something real, pushes us towards something that actually can fulfill. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, 
living the bravest life is dependent on the wisdom we continue to live out. Living out what we already have received. See, we've already received completeness. And living the bravest life is dependent on the wisdom that we continue to live out. We need a defense against those advertised um, alternatives. We need a defense against those things that are vying for our attention and trying to pull us away from what's real. And instead, let those things point us to what is real. And if we don't understand what we've been given is already all we need, there's going to be a temptation to gravitate towards those other things. There's going to be a temptation to turn away from the simple truth of the gospel and to turn towards something that is shaky and unstable and incomplete. So in our text this morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And just as a way of, of introduction, Paul wants the people of Colossae to continue. We've seen this already. They already started, but it, there is a need that Paul sees for them to continue. And there are dangers on the horizon. Continuing could be pretty straightforward. But we noted in week one that there are plenty of threats attempting to pull the Colossians away. The, promise of, uh, the prominence and power of Rome, for instance. Syncretism as a result of many religions and philosophies coming together in one place. And even the old religion, religious customs and practices that were still there in form, but not there in function. They had kind of lost the heart behind them. But for wise all-in living to be sustained, we'll have to proceed in what we already know and ditch the alternatives. This morning we'll see that a sustained pursuit of Christ means proceeding with gratitude and caution, proceeding in Christ's power, and proceeding alive and victorious. So let's open up... uh, to chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. We're going to start with just verses 6 through 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world, rather than on Christ. So we see that we've got to proceed with gratitude and caution. The imperative here, like we started out with, is to continue. Directly translated, that word means to walk. So Paul is referring to the general conduct of the Colossians, and our general conduct, that's dictated by the sphere of existence that we live in. Okay, the, the implication is that the Colossians have already started and that they're moving in the right direction, but they need to continue. And here's what I mean to continue in that same sphere of existence. And this is what Chuck talked about a little bit before. Here's where we operate. Excuse the kindergarten nature of this illustration, but it's a little bit oversimplified, but bear with me. We are 
without Christ living in the sin sphere. With Christ, we are in the in sphere. Okay? Sin sphere, in sphere. If we are in the sphere of Christ, that should impact the way we're living. If we're in the sphere of Christ, that's not just what we're thinking in our minds, but that's what we're doing with our whole entire lives. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, Colossians, you have believed, but I want more for you. I don't want you to be joining this as a social club or some kind of frat house, but I want you to actually be in the realm of Christ and live in. It's more than head knowledge. So a number of years ago, I volunteered uh, with an ambulance company, and I would go on calls with them occasionally. But after a certain point, I was required to get some training in order to actually participate and do anything on the calls. So I got a bunch of training, I had a ton of hours. But there was a point where class was dismissed and I needed to actually get back on an ambulance again and run with the crew and actually get some real world experience. See, if I had stayed in the classroom, if I just accrued more and more and more and more knowledge, there would have been the tendency for me to go one of two ways. Either I would have become extremely arrogant, thinking, I already know everything. I can handle every situation. Look at how much I know about dealing with emergency situations. Or I could go the other way. And I could become timid or insecure. So used to being in the classroom, so used to being in the textbooks, that I was afraid to step out, afraid to actually step into the world, up onto that ambulance, out into the community to affect change. Both of those things, both of those extremes are dangerous. Both of those extremes, not just in emergency service, can cost people their lives. As Christians, if we don't step out, or if we continue to be uh, just adding on knowledge after knowledge after knowledge, we run the risk of our hearts becoming hardened and not experiencing the life that we are meant to experience. So Paul says continue. But how do we continue? So let's look. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. In Him. We're going to see that repeated a bunch of times. But what that means is going deep and growing up. We see the word here, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in faith. Rooted means going down into who He is. A relationship that's not disrupted or displaced. Not disrupted by crisis of life. That can withstand the high winds when bad stuff happens. Not displaced by attractive alternatives. Not being moved by culture, fads, traditions. And the form that's just an empty form that's lost the heart behind it. And founded means to be built up, growing up on who he is, building a life around something that's solid rather than shaky. Okay, there's a great camp song, and I'm going to embarrass myself right now, but it goes like this. Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too close to shore. 
Well, it might be kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice because you'll have to build your house once more. I'm only doing that once. I'm not doing it again. Okay? Thank you. And the point of that song is very simple. Don't build your house on something that's shaky. Don't build your house on something that as soon as the storms of life come or the waves of life come, washes out and leaves you with no foundation. Build on something solid, not shaky. But here's some examples that we sometimes try and build on. For me, uh, maybe it's building my life on the good behavior of my kids. Maybe it's building my life on the good reputation I have. Or building my life on the acceptance of other people. Or maybe it's building my life on materialism and the constant amassing quantities, large quantities of stuff. Or maybe it's pursuing my dream house. And that's what I'm building my life around. But here's the thing for me, the thing that gets me the most, the alternative that threatens me is a performance-based identity. Begins to supersede a Christ-based identity. And I start to feel like if only I could just get the words right, if I could just move my children to behave just right so I could look like that awesome parent, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just do what only Christ can do. See, that performance-based identity puts me in the center and takes Jesus out of the center. It doesn't make any sense, but it happens all the time. And it's based on a fear that I can't control everything around me except, even though I want to. I'd love to be able to control everything around my situation, but I can't. It's a shallow and shaky starting point, starting with me rather than Jesus. Well, let's continue on. Paul says, continue cautious. Beware. Look at how he says it. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world, rather than on Christ. Simply don't put yourself in a situation that's shallow or shaky, where you could be uprooted or toppled over. Some stuff people are captivated by and carried off by, Paul calls the elemental spirits of the world, or in our text, the basic principles of this world. Which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. These would be the basic concepts and principles that belong to the world, not to the higher things of Christ, not to the in-sphere, not to the sphere of Christ. For someone who's tasted Christ, that's like going back to elementary school. For me, the image of uh, Billy Madison, I don't know if you're familiar with that era of movies, but I think of him repeating all the grades, Adam Sandler repeating all the grades, talking about Donkey Kong and video games, and drinking cafeteria milk out of the carton as an adult. That's what it would be like for us to go back. But we've done that. We've already received. We've already 
graduated. Paul points out that we also need to be aware of what we're thinking, what we're holding on to as our philosophy of life. If our life philosophy resolves around money, sex, and power, before revolving around Christ, all of these gifts from God will be misused rather than leveraged for the glory of God. And if you didn't know already, that's God's primary objective, His glory. When we put something else in the center, when we put something else as the axis of our lives, money squandered, powers abused, and sex is used. But notice, Paul also says, continue grateful. If we go back to verse 7, and overflowing with thankfulness. Is this element of thankfulness in our prayers, in our daily coming and going? Are we always asking for things to get more and more for ourselves? Maybe we feel entitled. Maybe we feel down or disappointed by God. For me, the Spirit pointed out this ungrateful, demanding, entitled attitude the other day while I was having a quiet time with Him. I realized I needed to shift and simply ask God to make it happen. But what He gave me was a hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And that's interesting because I don't even know all the words to that hymn. I don't have a practice of singing that over and over again, so I don't have it memorized. But Jesus knew I needed some worship. Jesus knew I needed thankfulness set to music. I had to take myself out of the spotlight and let the Spirit shine His light on Jesus Christ. And the result was thankfulness. Now, I know some of you are going through really hard seasons. I know that being thankful in this way that Paul describes seems impossible. How can we overflow with thankfulness when all we want to overflow with is tears and anger? When nothing in life is making sense and the world is dark and hostile? I think our only hope is the gospel that we've already received. To realize that we are in Christ and to take comfort that he rejoices with us but he also weeps with us. And we might not be feeling the emotion of thankfulness. But no matter what our situation is, we can recognize the reality of our salvation. This is why so many of the Psalms move from cries of help, pleas for help from God, and end in rejoicing. We can be thankful for what we've received forever, eternally, even while mourning the loss of something in this life. We've seen the importance of proceeding in gratitude and caution. We're going to see that we need to be proceeding with spiritual power. 
We're going to go to verses 9 through 12. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus is fullness. Back in chapter 1, Chuck talked about Jesus being the exact imprint of God. He said, if we want to know God, we've got to look at Jesus. Jesus is God. It was clear from that message that completeness can only be found in Jesus because he is completely and fully God. At the writing of this letter to the Colossians, some were proposing various locations for God where he could dwell. And they were also putting forward all kinds of crazy and fraudulent methods for how to get there. Paul is clear that there is no other dwelling place of God than in Christ alone. But here's the crazy part. Look at this. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head. Verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ. We've been brought to fullness. Not only in Christ, not only is Christ complete, but by grace through faith, we've been made complete. No, we're not perfect. And we won't be on this side of eternity, but we've, filled, we've been filled up with the power and qualities of Jesus Christ. And how is this possible? On whose authority? Jesus is the authority. He is the power. As creator and sustainer of all things, as we've seen in our text already, He is the one that can touch the spiritual inner life and cut away what's in the way. The only one that can do that. This is deep level heart work. This is a cutting away and a regrafting into the true source of life. John 15.5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit and apart from me you can do nothing. This is a pruning away of any excess baggage and a plugging into the power for life. No human ritual or rite can make this happen. Now, a few weeks ago, I had an uncle who went in for open-heart surgery. And he was more than willing to drive over an hour to receive that operation. He did not just travel to his local doctor in a box. He did not just travel to CVS for some Band-Aids in Advil. He went where he knew he could get that operation and get it done right. Where there was someone that was trained and had experience. But when we go to that local doctor in a box for major heart work, we're going to the wrong place. We're not going to the surgeon, the only surgeon that can perform that surgery, the only one that can perform that spiritual circumcision. And we see here, if we continue reading, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. Baptism is the sign. 
that we've been given to represent that spiritual transaction. It's not going to save anyone. Paul's very clear about this in other places in the Word. Baptism is just the outward sign of the inward reality. It pictures for us that spiritual circumcision. It pictures for us the killing of the old self that was slave to sin. Us going down into the waters of baptism and being buried, identified with Christ's death. Where sins taken, for, taken far from us, buried in the grave, no longer affecting us. Jesus' forgiveness. We have to get this. This is so critical. This is Jesus working. Our own effort is not going to do anything for us. A human ritual or discipline has no power or authority to save. Imagine how crazy it would be to get to the end, stand before a holy God, and say, Lord God, but look at all the things that I've done in Your name. Look at all the mornings I've spent and been able to check off my prayer time, been able to check off my daily Scripture reading. Lord, take a look at my Facebook page. Look at how many likes I have. Those little salvations won't do anything for us. We need Christ. And we need Him alone. He is the one that affects real change in our life. As those in Christ, we need to proceed with gratitude and caution, and we need to proceed in power, Christ's power. But we also need to be proceeding with life and victory. Verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, we don't stay under the baptism waters. We don't stay buried. That tomb is empty. We've been raised we're raised from what? We've been raised from death, and we've been raised from debt, as the text says. We've been raised from death. This is a real, full, and complete, no pulse, no breathing type of spiritual death. Before the work of Jesus, our uncircumcised heart does not work. There's no life flowing from us, and it's impossible for us to do good. It's impossible for us to live the type of life that we've been talking about throughout this whole series. We've been raised from debt. This is a debt beyond anything that we could pay. The relative size of our debt is inconsequential. It only takes one sin to be guilty of all. James 2.10 says, keep the whole law and stumble in just one and you're guilty of all. Let's take a second to pause. I want you to take your hands and put them out in front of you. And I want you to look at your hands. Don't look at me anymore. Just look at your hands. Now think about 
all the things that these hands have done. If after doing that, you can say, I'm not guilty of one single sin, you are deceiving yourself. It should be clear that all of us have stumbled. Okay, you can put your hands down. The reality is that we're all guilty. But suddenly, the case against us disappears. Suddenly, our hands are made clean. Now pause again. Close your eyes this time. A lot of audience interaction this morning. Bear with me. Imagine now the hands of Christ. The nail-pierced hands of Christ and what they have done. Okay, you can open your eyes. Jesus took on all sin. He suffered the physical and relational agony of being torn from His heavenly Father so we didn't have to. The tool wielded by Rome for torture and death was wielded by Christ for victory and life. The enemy has been relieved of their weapons. The text says disarmed. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The accusations against us, they're now empty because our salvation is full. See, Satan wants to convince you that you can find fullness in the world. Satan wants to convince you to discontinue your pursuit of Christ and chase something in the world. But we who have believed know the object of our pursuit is not in this world. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. All the empty searches of this life that stem from that desire to find fullness, that feeling that something's just not quite right, that something's a little bit incomplete. That feeling is real. Don't deny that. But let's continue to let that feeling push us to Christ because He is the only one that, He is the only place, the only one that we'll ever find fullness in. Pursuing Christ means proceeding in what, what and who we already know and have received. That should lead us to making different decisions in our lives. Maybe it looks like choosing missions instead of retirement. Maybe it looks like showing grace and love to my kids versus harsh discipline that aggravates internal issues and only addresses external ones. Maybe it means selling the house versus getting the dream house. Maybe it means providing clothes for someone in the community who needs one outfit instead of having a unique outfit for every day of the month. Or it could mean simply volunteering our time when we're already exhausted from our full-time job. But imagine if we did live like this. I think we would start to look a lot like Christ as we proceed in Him 
with overflowing gratitude, spiritual power, and life and victory. I think this could change our lives and the lives of those around us. This is the power of the gospel lived out as individuals and as a body of believers, together adding value to our community, to our place of work, and to our homes. So let's continue in what we already know, ditch the alternatives, and live all in. Let's live it. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for uh, the leading of Your Spirit that helps us to receive what we've already received. That helps us to be aware of Your presence. That helps us to look beyond just this situation into eternity where You sit, where You're enthroned. Lord, thank You for Your servant Paul and the Word You speak through him. I pray that we would be encouraged, that our resolve would be strengthened to live brave lives. Pursuing You. Proceeding. Continuing. Overflowing with thankfulness. Proceeding in Your power proceeding with victory and life. Lord, help us to live it. Help us to know what that looks like and what that means for us as individuals and as a church body. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name.